0: focusing on American natural wine um, you know what what are some of the things that are important to you um, with this topic I mean there I feel like we see natural wines made in, in so many states now it's definitely extended beyond Oregon and California and Vermont and New York and um, Michigan Texas I mean so many states so what do you um, what do you think is important to talk about for the domestic natural wine market?
1: So I think the thing that's really interesting, and I actually don't know as much about New World outside of the U.S. natural wines, like I know a little bit about Latin American and Australian or whatever, but for the most part, the, th- the difference that I normally always see is about the way that grapes are sourced and land costs and just the general like barriers to entry are normally like a lot harder in the U.S. So I feel like the conversations we have to have around American natural wines, or even just generally broadly with new world natural wines is totally different. Like what's necessary to go into it is totally different than what we see with, you know, our old world European wines. So that's the area that I always end up gravitating towards. There's also obviously the topics around, you know, like the natural wines is now defined in France. And obviously in the U S like we have a lot more lax laws. So There's all kinds of things we can discuss, but those are the two that were like pretty big for me. What about you?
0: For sure. Yeah, I I think that um, the sheer number of natural winemakers in the U.S. are, you know, they have started their own wineries. They've started their own projects. They are not coming from, you know, extensive wine backgrounds or generations of, of, you know, landowners. And so um, a lot of producers, I feel like, um, purchase fruit because that's definitely the more economical way to go about doing it. Um, they share facilities um, You know, there is like this uh, more sort of experimental um, Attitude, um, I think partially out of necessity and um, You know as we talk about natural line in the US, I think it's important to think about um, what has contributed to that rise and Um, you know, what do we need to be thinking about moving forward for the next generation? Um, So I, one of the most important things to me is the discussion around globalization and how that's really played a role in, um, in the way that we think about um, natural line, how we have, you know, it's a very prominent category amongst millennials. And so you know, what do we think of when we think of millennials, we think of technology and this access to information, um, and also world traveling. And I know that this is a story that is very important to you because you got into natural wine when you were living overseas, right? Like when you were younger and, um, you know, had you not had that experience, what type of wine would you be drinking today? Like what would be important to you? and so, you know, there are some pioneers. I think that even though we've seen such a boom in the natural wine category in the U.S., um, we hear a lot more about organics, which have been on the rise in general with not just wine, but food and, and all sorts of products that we consume and purchase. Um, and so it's been this like trickle, trickle down effect um, that I think has, has definitely um, been like a, a really important conversation um, and also the way that people think about natural wines here.
1: And that just made me also think of that I'd forgotten until this point, but the uh, clean wine movement versus natural wine, which I do feel is a very American thing. Like you don't hear about clean wines when you're in Europe or in other parts of the world. So all right, so we have have quite a few topics to touch (laughs) on. And if there are certain ones that y'all that are on here find more interesting, feel free to kind of bring those up as we're going. But there's obviously Rodney and I could do like an entire series just on this, so, but let's start with grape buying, because I think that that's really like, it's not that unique, you can obviously do it everywhere, but I feel like I see it much more often with our American producers than I do abroad, and I feel like that normally deals with, you know, like, price of land and just the way that like the U.S. is set up, but I think that most people probably don't realize that, so like, maybe you can... As the advanced psalm walk us through you know like what does that mean what's the difference between having your own grapes and buying them what does that process look like and like why do you think that's more prevalent here
0: um one of the reasons yeah good good question i think that um you know we do see like producers in france uh or in and most you know other european countries especially in the past few years purchasing fruit primarily for reasons that are related to climate, like, um, you know, frost and hail and these sort of extreme climactic conditions, which we're also seeing now in the US too, with um, obviously the the, you know, the fires and stuff on the West Coast and how climate change is just playing a role for for the wine industry in general. But um, to me, one of the most important things is that um, this has allowed for a lot more experimentation. And what you were talking about with kind of the laws here being a lot more lacks it really has given the producers the opportunity to um explore um you know older varieties because when we think of american wines generally we we sort of shift towards focusing on certain grape varieties um and i think that that is that's that's definitely changing um as producers start to explore with you know planting new types of grape varieties finding abandoned vineyards from these these crazy grapes that were growing in california in the 19th century and and early 20th century that have just been abandoned because they weren't considered as lucrative um, as some of the you know the big boys like Cabin Merlot and Chardonnay. Um, it's opened up I think people's ability to go outside the norm to expand their palates, to be more comfortable with trying new styles of wine um, in general, not just different grape varieties but different colors of wine, um, different winemaking methods. Um and I think that's a really important thing to 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 be as open minded um because if you are constantly trying to just find wines that you know fit this specific category and profile, that's fine, but it's definitely not um interesting and it doesn't give the wine industry as a whole the opportunity to um to expand and to grow and to bring on new producers um and new projects. and I think that's really, really important.
1: For sure. Yeah, and I think that the idea of just, like, buying grapes, it's, I think, yeah, like you said, it it happens everywhere, but, oh, uh, so an interesting one that I was thinking about was, like, you know, we're talking about from East Coast to West Coast, so a really fun one, I think uh, Ruth Lewandowski, or, um, what's his name, his name's not Ruth, Drew, no.
0: uh, I've had the wine sometimes, and I always forget.
1: Anyways, um, he actually made most of his wines in Utah. So he was, he has this like big plan of eventually growing grapes there, but basically he makes the wine in Utah and he does his winery stuff there, but then Evan. Thanks. thanks. Thank you. (laughs) Um, so he buys the grapes from around California and maybe a few from Oregon, but mainly California. And then he trucks them all in or used to at least into Salt Lake city and makes the wines there. So I think that, you know, it, it's an interesting like remark on like there's almost like a separation between the two and I think when most people think about wine they always assume like you know they grow the grapes and then they make the wine but that's actually not always the case and the U.S. has some really great examples with like Las Yaras and uh, Evan and other people that basically like I think that over time their plan is to buy their plots but obviously if you're talking about like Primo, even not Primo, just generally land in California. Like think about how expensive that is. Right. Um, so you have to buy grapes. And so it's really important in this area that you wouldn't normally see with like a French producer, you know, that they have really good relationships with people and that they're able to know where their wines come from. And the other thing that's fun is like sometimes Martha will have grapes from the same place that Las Yaras does. So they're totally different wines, but they're from the exact same plot, you know, they literally are the same grapes from the same place in California. And that's something really unusual that you don't normally see when you're in Europe, because there are, you know, basically people that have a lot of grapes that are made the way that we would expect a grape to be made for a natural wine, and all of the same producers that we love are, you know, essentially using those same plots. So it's, it's kind of fun, a little bit different.
0: Yeah, and like one of the other things about that is, you know, in Europe, I think uh, I, my mind just generally goes to France when I'm thinking about this, but I can't tell you the number of wines that I have like on my wine program at Bethelina that are, you know, categorized as been to France. Um, and basically you're like, cool, where does this come from? And then you have to do a bunch of research and, and like read the importer's website Um, because uh, a lot of those wines, A, you know, the producer will intentionally declassify to this sort of table wine category because they don't want to have to work within those regulations or their wines are rejected um, because they don't, you know, fit this like typicity of the region that they're producing wine from. Whereas I think that in the U.S., uh, with natural line labels we see a lot more information on the bottle people like list
1: yeah that's a
0: good point by farms um what vineyard they're coming from you know the sub region like the town that the wine is produced in so there's a lot more um transparency in that regard uh, of course there is a a lack of transparency d- g- generally in the conventional wine world across the board but
1: i love um, like this one that's such a good uh, example like oh, i don't know if you can read it but like Uh, Evan even puts like how to like say Cortese because like Cortese is the grape here. So we not only like get to know what the grape is, exactly where it came from, what vineyard. Plus he's like, oh, and don't worry, if you don't know how to say it, let me like phonetically spell it out for you. So that like when you're serving this, you can like have a good experience around it. I think some of that is just like probably the American way of like trying to like be helpful and give information um, and like not... (laughs) gatekeep I would say like new world is a lot less gatekeepy in general in wine than old world but also I think it's just you know like it's legally not allowed in a lot of places and you're up to do something like that so it's
0: and you don't have an importer's label which is taking from there for (laughs) reducing the amount of information that you can put to so that's really really helpful um, it's funny with the Ruth Lewandowski wines the first time I saw those I think Chris and I both just assumed that they were from Utah and we were like oh cool Utah Utah wines Utah like natural wine in Utah that's so cool and then later we realized that um the fruit was actually coming from California but
1: yeah I have faith man I mean like if we're talking about old Westminster and like the stuff that we have in the cloud this month like maryland their terroir is awesome like you would yeah. never know it's not like everyone like virginia is normally more thought of than maryland but like their place is amazing and they get like like this is like their easy piquette which is a totally different thing than like a regular natural wine. but like they'll have like stunning wines that have like incredible character and are just so from there so I have total faith that, like, we're going to see really stunning, and I think, honestly, like, I think the first wines we'll probably see that are, like, showstoppers from most states that actually get attention could actually be natural wines, because for the most part, conventional winemakers, like, they'll make wines in these places, but natural wines are the most likely to be experimental with, like, what it actually means to be, you know, a wine of place in Maryland or in place of Marfa or whatever, you know, like there's just so many, they're the most likely to actually express what it is. And so I think that that's going to be something really cool. And I think the category of natural wine is really going to allow that to happen. Like Vermont's a perfect example. Na- Vermont live on the map and natural wine is putting Vermont on the map.
0: Yeah. And there's some great producers in Texas too. And in Texas is not like, I mean, obviously it's a huge state um but there are there's some really cool producers um here like um Henry Croson is one of my favorites he's based out in Johnson City you have Southwold Farm and Cellar um and their Mm -hmm. winemaker Adrian Ballou who makes her own Mm -hmm. wines which I'm a huge fan of and La Cruz de Camal. and so we're seeing um you know we're seeing it's important to think that to note that this is not just like a recent phenomenon as well there were producers you know in the 70s and 80s that were doing this before it was ever considered cool. And you probably wouldn't know that because a lot of them or not a lot of them, but some of them are like Napa cab producers, but like mm-hmm. diamond Creek, for instance, is such an important producer from that area that has been making wines like this since the eighties and Kathy Corison since the nineties um, who I absolutely love. But, you know, aside from alternative varieties, like you can still make really great natural wine with, um, you know, these kind of old school great varieties as well. But I think the influence of, you know, schools and institutions like UC Davis has sort of, um, you know, they've reevaluated a lot of what they were teaching um, back in the 70s and 80s. Oh, when it, interesting. Really big, you know, boom of winemakers that were coming out and graduating and starting to produce wine because they were so focused on like technical production and, you know, um, conventional yeasts and you know that also in the 80s they were they were encouraging winemakers to use like limousine oak to ferment their chardonnay and so if you taste like a chardonnay from the 80s from california and it's just like you know limousine oak is now just used for things like cognac that have a much higher alcohol content and so um yeah there's so many different factors at play here but i think it's really cool it's it's bringing this really nice dynamic um, to our to our wine industry and satiating millennials' palates as well, like us. <laughs> All right, so
1: I know we're going to take uh, questions in a couple of minutes. So let's just briefly also touch on the uh, clean wine movement and where we, why, like, actually, let me, let me pose you this question. So the clean wine movement has come about and it clearly seems to be an American thing that is not so much existing in other places. Why do you think that America is a place that the clean wine movement is happening? And generally, like, how would you differentiate clean a clean wine from a natural wine?
0: Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I think the clean wine movement, uh, quote unquote, is sort of like this influencer-driven, you know, big corporation type of marketing efforts um, more than anything. And I think so much of what the confusion is with natural wine is focused on organics and, you know, uh, organic products um, and consumers drinking and consuming more organic things. And so clean wine, I think, leaves out so much of the conversation that makes natural wine, you know, natural. Um, And so the the conversation can't just be about organic fruit it has to be about sustainability as a whole it has to be about you know um you know of course sulfur but i don't want to get into that um it has you know it's about living wages how you treat your workers like the sustainability conversation is so much broader than just organic fruit and i think that's what's really lacking with like our organic certification that's regulated by the usda because it says that you can't have any sulfur in in your wines to get this organic certification, which just, it's just very short-sighted. And I encourage people to look for transparency beyond, um, beyond organics.
1: Yeah. I think I was just thinking about this while you were talking about it too, because I was trying to think about how I would describe the difference. And like, as someone that, tries to live like, like no one's zero waste, but like we try to be zero waste. And I think maybe a good comparison for like clean versus natural wine is it's like, if you look at either your food or you look at even like maybe beauty products actually is probably the best example, like beauty products, like of course you can buy clean beauty. Like there's a huge market for clean beauty and it's all about everything that goes on your face being, you know, natural or, you know, something that's not hurting the environment. I think that's really important. Like, I don't hate the clean wine movement. I love that it exists. I think that it is a really good push in the right direction for like the broader public. But like, also, if we bring it back to that example, like, let's talk about clean beauty, and I'm going to put a cream that's not going to hurt my face on it. i sorry, it's not gonna hurt my face, but the packaging itself might be just absolutely full of plastic and like not recyclable and not made in a way that is as thoughtful as what's in it. And maybe where it was made and how it was made is also not in line with the ideals of what I'm looking for. So while it's serving the purpose of making my body probably better, it's not serving the full circle purpose. So it's like, you know, it's a it's step in the right direction, but it's just not the same
0: thing. Right. Not fully there and, and not yeah. so- like water, yeah, I mean, even so many sustainable clothing brands will give you like you know the amount of water that's used like to produce you know something, and I think that that is another conversation that's been happening, of course, with you know um what everything that's happening on the west coast, like water usage is really important. Um, and yeah, there there are so many things to to talk about. Um looks like we have a question from Terroir Meroir cool name. Um, is clean wine, not just a new marketing term. Yeah. I mean it is, but I don't, I think it is a marketing term, but I don't think that it's synonymous with natural wine. I think that it, it is missing a lot of the, the key elements that Holly and I just, um, just talked about. So, um, beware, beware of clean, mm-hmm. of
1: clean wine. Yeah. <laughs> just ask, just like it's all just about asking questions it's like I think it's great like a lot of the clean wine brands that are now coming out are trying to be transparent on their labels which is awesome because like we just talked about especially with American wines you have more room and it's more likely that you're gonna see transparency because there's less restrictions in the U.S. but it's it's almost like look for what is not there like look like you know there are things that are there and it'll say it's vegan wine that's amazing like we love vegan wine like there's so many things to like say yay to but then it's like well why doesn't it say where it actually came from or why doesn't it say what really went into it it'll say what's not in it but it's not saying what is in it and so there's just you know like it's just the idea of walking through a process of thinking through like oh this is nice this is transparent but a lot of times especially if it looks too marketing-y like like someone was paid a lot of money to make that label and is too sexy. Like there's probably something wrong with it. Like when I see a label that has like a typo on it, I'm like, oh, this person like has no marketing budget. (laughs) this person is like literally we're just paying for the wine here this person is like doing the best they can and like actually like probably legitimately like doing the work versus you know having some big budget because when you have big budgets that means you have big expenses and that Mm -hmm. money is not going into the wine it's going into these other parts of it and that's that's also a conversation for conventional wine but i think clean wine is a good segue from, like, between conventional wines, natural wine, like, it's, like, in the middle, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, and and it's important to, like, yeah, like, look for information and not just words on a label, because I, I, I always try to avoid those label, those back labels that, you know, paint this really flowery description of what's in, you know, what the wine's going to taste like, and the beauty of the vineyards, and, like, this just very, you know, kind of sexy imagery, but it, but they're really not giving, telling you anything, you know? It's like well I can kind of figure out what the wine tastes like myself. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm gonna taste it, but how yeah. how where did it come from and how did it come from <laughs> there?
0: Does um does anyone have any questions? Feel free to put them in the feed and we will answer them. We have just a few minutes left. Yeah, we
1: started a little late. So okay, so while we're waiting, here's a perfect example. So I have this Donkey Goat Ramato Pinot Gris, and like it's just so nice how Blunt. you can actually be on the back labels Ooh, someone said no headaches no hangovers
0: yeah exactly
1: so Um, so if someone puts that on the back of the bottle don't buy the bottle that's not true that's like that's like such marketing that's just such marketing speak um so let's just talk about the difference so like ingredients on the back of donkey and goat hand harvested biodynamic grapes and sulfur so they're already telling you that they have sulfur. It's okay to have sulfur. Like, obviously the goal is just not to have a ton of it. So like, that's like the type of transparency that you should be looking for in something like this. Um, and they also walk through, you know, the way that it's made and the words that I look for, whether on the back of the bottle or just when I'm researching a wine and when we're you know, thinking about working with a wine is spontaneously fermented. Was it spontaneously fermented? Um, unfined, unfiltered. Like it doesn't have to be all of those things. actually that's not true. For it to be natural to me, it has to be spontaneously fermented with native yeast. Sometimes I'm okay with a little bit of filtration. It all depends. Um, and then, you know, they're biodynamic. Like that's the top for me. But even if, you know, they're just a sustainable farm, like
0: that's you know, the minimum.
1: So those are things you're looking for.
0: Um, we have a question From N. Jansen, Uh, what state do you think is going to be the next up-and-coming place for grape growing, excluding California, Texas, Vermont, Washington, and Oregon?
1: Oh, man, that's a tough question.
0: Um, You know, I go up to Michigan every year, and there are quite a few wineries in the Upper Peninsula, and, um, you know, there are a few of them that I think are focusing less on, like, the tourist market and actually trying to make Um, some cool like cool climate uh, wines can't name any of them right now (laughs) but um, I know that there are a lot of people that are that are experimenting up there Um, I think New York uh, is an important state to include Um, what do you think
1: I think the two that I immediately came to mind were so I think Maine along with Vermont like that's an easy one they're pretty close to each other Maybe like uh, New Hampshire, New Hampshire is like Vermont's so interesting because it has such amazing terroir and obviously as like climate change happens, it's warming up. So Maine for the same reason. New Hampshire is a little bit more mountainous. So maybe not as much there. And then the other one I was thinking of is North Carolina, like North Carolina has really beautiful like terroir, I imagine they would have really beautiful terroir based on um, like the type of like mountains and the type of like structure that they have as a state plus like Asheville is just like such a perfect place like they have a great microbrewery climate already like the people around that area I feel like would gravitate towards uh, winemaking so I could totally see I don't know any from I know some from like Morphos is great in Maine Um, I don't know any in that North Carolina right now but I could totally see it being like the next one of the next epicenters both for like natural wine culture and just generally like wine making because it's such a beautiful place uh, and it really could create some nice things. Also I really have a lot of hope for Virginia, like I'm sad that Virginia doesn't have more because it's already such a nice wine region and like Thomas Jefferson was super about it was like the next Bordeaux and like no one ever says anything good about, not anything good, I've had good Virginia wines, but like they just don't get the same amount of attention so right. someone's got to do it there. Someone's got to move to Virginia and like do something with that terroir. Like I have faith in that. Yeah. <laughs> someone's asking about mead or flower wines.
0: Um, I love mead.
1: I think mead is awesome.
0: Um, I like, I like mead as well, but I don't know um, anything about natural production in, in mead. I'm sure that it exists. Um.
1: One of the producers that we work with in France produces a really cool mead, so he makes great natural wines, and then he has, like, a apiary or, like, a couple different hives and gets some, get some more honey from his friends in the area, and there are meads that are made really well, and there are meads that are made and are terrible, and yeah. just like with everything else, like, the majority of what you taste is just, like, oh, this is sugary, and, like, like a little bit thick and acid. Yeah. (laughs) um, But when it's made correctly again, like, you know, because it's probably with artificial fillers and it's just not that great. But like when you try one that actually is made from legit honey from just like, you know, your backyard and you like allow it to like ferment. It's honestly probably like a lot easier to make when I think about it than making something like a wine. Right. um, Because honey is a lot easier to work with and they're, delicious if they're made correctly there's just less of a market for them so we don't see them as often but i think that they are like i think they'll also be up and coming you know us millennials and like i think even more probably gen x inside who's after us like i think they're gonna be even like more crazy than we are because they're already more crazy about the environment which i love and so if that's the case then i think they're gonna open the market even further and like look into these other things I don't even know, I don't know much about flower wine, so I can't really comment on that. Other than we do have a cider maker that we like to work with in Canada. And he will uh, ferment a lot of his like apple ciders with like chamomile or he'll ferment them with like dandelions. And they create not only like really cool tasting stuff, but the colors on it are incredible. Like, they'll be like purple sometimes. And it's completely natural, nothing added to it. And they literally just use what's there. So I'm really excited encourage like you know we're talking about america but like global warming is happening so you know the northeast is going to be happening having a lot of new things happening plus canada because you know it's on the same altitude so a lot of things that we expect out of like a german producer or even just all the native stuff like it'll be really cool to see what happens yeah. you came across us and house hunters Welcome. <laughs>
0: thanks for being here um, well, I think that that, uh, wraps up as much as we can fit into the 30 minutes. Um, the meat,
1: the meat company is, um, well, so the producer is Le Petit Domain and, cool. uh, we have not brought the meat in yet with our import company, but our goal is to bring some of his meat in at some point. There's also a place in Portland, Maine. If you guys are ever there, I cannot think of the name, Nick, if you remember it, please put it in there. Um, but there's a me- a meadery, that's what they're called, I love that name, um, in Portland, and they make amazing stuff like the type, like everything from like, it's all natural, but like everything from a regular mead to like, like a frosé version of mead. So it's like everything you could have possibly thought about mead, <laughs> you can explore in Portland, Maine. Um, so that's a good one.
0: We'll awesome. find it after. Um, well, thank, thank you guys for tuning in tonight. If you want to join the last uh, limited edition MISA and WOW Wine Club Month, you can do so by checking out our links in, in our bios and also going on to misa.wine and com. And we hope that you guys uh, enjoy the domestic selections this month and find great ways to share with your friends and loved ones and celebrate the end of the year. I'll be chat with you.
1: <laughs> you too. It's like we're together. I know. Have
0: <laughs> Bye.